here's a big question to get you thinking. What do our jobs do to our souls? There's probably not one clear answer for everyone, right? Maybe it depends on the job itself or who we are, our personalities, our resilience, our histories, and so on. Maybe what we get out of our jobs changes as we grow and evolve across our lifespan. I know that for me as a younger 20-something, I craved a job that would perfectly embody my values, a job that could be the ultimate expression of my utmost meaning and purpose, and also probably a little bit of ego in there as well. And culture around me seemed to reinforce those ideals and encourage me in that direction. Maybe you, dear listener, can say the same. But is that really the goal? Should it be? Can a job change who we are as a person? And should it? What really does a job do to a soul? A new novel attempts to find out. From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. What do our jobs do to our souls? That's the big question asked in the debut novel of Ben Perkert. It's called The Men Can't Be Saved, and the author joins us today. As the title implies, the novel explores what it means to be a man in a modern context, unpacking both overt and subtle expressions of toxic masculinity, while examining themes like work, religion, sex, drugs, and ourselves in between along the way. Ben Perkert is a poet and novelist. He authored the poetry collection For the Love of Endings. His writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The Nation, Slate, and in many other publications. Ben is also the founder of Backdraft, a Guernica interview series. He holds degrees from Harvard and NYU and currently teaches creative writing at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. Ben, welcome to The New Story Is, and thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me. So, Ben, your book grapples with a very big question. I asked it a few times in the cold open there. What do our jobs do to our souls? There's a lot of other themes we're going to unpack together, too. But why is this core question one that you felt compelled to ask and dissect in your debut novel? Yeah, well, thanks for starting there. Um, You know, I think so. I worked as an advertising copywriter um, and One of the things that, you know, it's not unique to agencies, but certainly is common to them. You just get so invested in the work, right? They're not the clients of the agency. They're your personal clients. Um, Similarly, when you're creating creative, whether it's a logo or a tagline, it's not just, you know, the, the deliverable, the product, it's your art, it's everything. And I think that that's on some level by design, right? Like the industry needs you to buy in on that level. And it becomes harder to differentiate what is the nine to five self versus what is, you know, yourself and your values and and your life outside of it. And if I could write a book that looked at that and examined it, but also maybe poked fun at that a little bit, you know, I I would have satisfied my own uh, curiosity. Yeah. I wonder if, if that was something that you noticed specifically or exclusively, I should say, in the world of advertising, because I, I I feel like in the setup uh, or in the, the show's open, I was kind of alluding to that, too, where I also felt not going down a path of advertising or copywriting when I was you know a young 20 something, but looking into like politics and public service and 
looking at like how big can I get and and never even seeing a boundary or distinguishing line between me and the work that I aspire towards or the job title that I aspire towards. Have you also seen others kind of like lose themselves and be tempted or maybe even duped into losing themselves in their work in other industries based on, you know, just your experiences and just being a person? Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, let's be clear, losing yourself in your work can be a great joy. I mean, when you're doing work that you believe in, you know, for a client that, that you really care about um, on a personal level, that, that's, that's a wonderful thing. So we all want that on some level. But I do think that there's a kind of feedback and companies, you know, I don't want to get too broad with this, but capitalism in general, it's, it seizes on, that, right? There's, a, there's value in you loving your work so much that your boundaries around the work-life balance, they just dissipate and you become one in effect with your job. And so everyone wants that. We want to find purpose in our, in our careers and we should seek that out. On the other hand, you know, I, I think some of the people who have the healthiest relationship with work that I know are the ones who delineate. They're the ones who go to the job. They have a clear understanding that it's a job, that it doesn't define them. And then they go back to their life outside of work and they don't check their phone all the time. They're not constantly available on email, you know, all week. So I, I, on some level, I aspire to it. And as a writer, I really struggle with that because I'm, I'm always wanting to tinker, to revise, to get into the book. And I have to tell myself, you know, today is not a writing day. Today is a day uh, just to be with your son. Today is a day to, you know, go to the beach. Today's a day to get involved in activism around a cause or, or something that I care about. It, it's not easy. Yeah. It sounds like there's a level of like self-discipline or boundaries that need to be applied to our own like self-concept. I tend to think that it has a lot to do like this, this it being an issue um, with just the internet era. It just seems like it's broken down all walls and boundaries and distinctions between, you know, what is like leisure time or personal time? What is work time? Uh, have you given any thought to that as well as we start to transition to talk about the book itself? Yeah, I, I think, you know, why, why is that is a question, right? Like why, why, why has it been getting worse? And one answer I think is technology. It's just easier to, to be available all the time than it was before, right? People have talked about that. That's, that's nothing new. But I also think, you know, on some level, that's the easy answer. Just to say that the, the technological innovations that have happened in the workplace are responsible for that erosion. And I think the answer is yes, for sure. But, you know, why are we letting that happen? Just because the technology is available, is it because employers have more power over us? Is it because we are maybe looking to fill a void? And the character, the main character in my novel, Seth, he he's he is full of voids. Like there's something absent in the center of him, which I hope is what makes him a compelling figure. We want to understand why does he need this job so bad? Obviously, you need a job to pay bills, to to feed yourself, maybe your family, but it's more than that. When, when he's laid off, he has nothing left. And that kind of crisis, I think, is one that speaks to our moment, our contemporary moment, and is also a deeply American phenomenon. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about 
Seth, who is full of, of voids, as you mentioned. And as I was reading your book, I was kind of relating to like the, the younger version of me and that I kind of set up again in, in the in the cold open. And, and lo and behold, thanks to some years of therapy and a lot of reflection, I thought, wow, yeah, this, this guy sounds familiar in a few ways. But so, so in The Men Can't Be Saved, Seth is a junior copywriter. He's your protagonist. And in the first pages, we learned that his latest tagline that he created or created partly went viral. Can you tell us a little bit about Seth, uh, other than, you know, that he's he's got these voids in his life and his work fills them. And as you mentioned, he's going to soon lose his job and have to reckon with quite a bit of the, about those voids. Why is it that his his recent career successes in the start of your novel won't fix what else is going on in his life? Is it simply because work can't fill in these voids for very long? What is it about Seth in particular that you felt like uh, couldn't couldn't grapple with his personal struggles? It's a good question. I, I think, you know, if you were to ask Seth on the first few pages of the novel, if he's satisfied, if he's fulfilled, he would say yes. You know, he, he you're right. He's coming off this, uh, this coup in a sense. He wrote a tagline for a client that no one else at the agency wanted. It was this adult diaper, this men's brand of adult diapers that no one had heard of. It was sort of like a lowest client on the totem pole. And, you know, of course, a junior copywriter gets it. That, that's how it works when I worked at an agency too. Um, but he turned, he turned it into gold somehow and, and the company made a lot of money and the, and the tagline went viral. So for him, this is the pinnacle of success. And I think we need for like, from a reader's standpoint, we need that bluster and that ridiculous ego on the first few pages for the comedy of the book to work because we need to see him fall on some level. And, and he certainly thinks he's starting out at a very high place, but is he really fulfilled? Is he really satisfied? I, you know, I, I have questions about that. And for him, the real pinnacle of success would be making partner at his agency. And one of the things that I've, I've always found interesting about that word partner is that it's a very intimate word, actually, when you strip it from its corporate context. And Seth is a character who He's an only child. He struggles with relationships. I think he needs partnership. I think he needs camaraderie. I think he needs brotherhood. But in his mind, partnership is a very one-dimensional or two-dimensional thing. It, it's strictly getting the corner office that he wants. And, and that, I think, is, is the tragedy, but also the comedy of him. I know, as you said, Ben, that you were once yourself a New York City-based tagline copywriter at a branding agency. So how much of the Seth character was based on who you once knew yourself to be as a younger man? And how much of him was fictionalized to represent certain ideas and to, you know, as you said, set up the the drama and the, the tragedy, the comedy of this character, his downfall, and what he would have to reckon with throughout the story? Yeah. It's a, it's a hard thing to put a percentage on, you know, like what is the, where does the life of the novelist end? And then where does the fictional character's life begin? The, the most honest answer I can give you is that the men can't be saved is a work of fiction. And so on some level, I want to tell you that everything in it is, is completely made up. Um, having said that, there are certain similarities just in terms of experiences that I felt able to write about. There are client meetings in this book that go south uh, really quickly. Uh, I was in some of those client meetings. I remember what it's like when you present a tagline to a client 
and they don't like it. And when I worked at the agency was, was really during the great recession, I started working as a copywriter right out of college in 2007. And then the next year, it seemed like everyone was getting laid off every week. There was a new round of layoffs and it was a very difficult and painful environment in which to work, particularly for colleagues of mine who had been in that industry, had been in that agency for many years. So I think on some level, the, the inciting incident of my novel, you know, and this is not giving too much away, it happens very early on, but that we would have a young copywriter in an environment where layoffs are taking place, that is certainly informed by my own lived experience. But largely everything that happens afterward is, is a work of fiction. Yeah, and I'm sure that some of those experiences from the Great Recession era, so 2007, 2008, were experienced again, you know, during during the COVID-19 era, and, and maybe they're even happening again with, um, you know, the, the recession or, or potential recession and inflation that's going on. So I'm sure it's something that people can relate to kind of cross-generationally. Um, ben, I, I assume based on the themes of the book that we're, we've started to discuss that ideas like, ma- you know, manhood, masculinity, male identity have been of interest to you in general. Would you say that they've been interests throughout your life? Have you always been kind of interested in how you relate to, you know, uh, manhood and, and like the gender of being a man? Uh, or is it a more more recent interest? I heard you mentioned that you have a son, I believe. So I wonder if that kind of inspires some more reflections on like what it means to be a man in the modern world. What's your relationship been like to these themes, you know, th- throughout your time as a self-identifying man? Well, I think, how do I answer this? For a long time, I have really not identified as a writer. I've identified specifically as a poet. And one of the things about being a poet and declaring oneself a poet really early on in life, like I've been writing poems, you know, basically my whole life, but I, I, I had some teachers in middle school and in high school who you know, just lit a passion, uh, you know, and, and, and from that point on, I knew that, that poems in particular, that genre would always mean a lot to me. And when I would tell people that I loved poetry, that I wanted to be a poet, it was interesting to watch people's faces because, um, looking the way that I look and, you know, identifying from a gender standpoint, the way that I identify poetry is, is, sort of the antithesis in many ways of one brand of masculinity. Like it is all about sensitivity. It's all about, um, you know, intimacy. It's vulnerable. Maybe that's really the, the biggest one. It, it is associated with a kind of vulnerability. And so I, you know, I, I don't know that certainly I'm not a gender scholar. I'm not a sociologist. You know, it, it's not, it's not something that I've, deeply research. My life is really one of being a creative writer, but I am interested in why is it that to identify as a man is to situate oneself at a distance from something like vulnerability. When in my life, I have tried to close that gap. Uh, Hopefully my novel explores that. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. And so in addition to kind of uh, closing the gaps in um, how how in our culture, in our society, 
having a, a male or a, identifying as a man, I'm trying to distinguish the the sexuality from the gender identity being two different things, oftentimes getting conflated, um, finding myself at a loss for finding the right word sometimes as well. But there is an exploration throughout the Men Can't Be Saved, Ben, of these two different kinds of toxic masculinity in particular, so toxic masculinity expressions. There's those men who see no problem with their bad behavior and kind of you know acknowledge it, but don't see it as problematic. But then there's those men in the book uh, who don't see their behaviors as wrong or bad in the first place. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that tension that exists with those two expressions of toxic masculinity, because it, it kind of struck me that I've, I've always kind of overgeneralized toxic masculinity as like one monolith, but really there's many different expressions of it. Why was it important to kind of parse apart what those expressions of toxic masculinity are from your point of view as a storyteller? Well, I think there's two, I, the two main characters really in my book are Seth, the main character and Moon. And they're both, you know, I don't want to label them simply as toxic. I think they have more facets than that, but certainly both make bad decisions, behave badly at different points in the novel. And they do so in completely different ways. Seth beats himself up. He's constantly um, doing something and then rethinking, should he have done it? He's incredibly neurotic. And his actions still have negative consequence for a lot of the people around him. Moon just couldn't give a crap. Like he's much more liberated. He's messy. He's bro-y. He's fratty. He's loud. He's boisterous. And he's living his life. And one of the central questions that the book asks is, you know, Seth really thinks that he's a lot better than Moon. Um, Moon is so much coarser than he is. But is he really better? Is one better than the other? Are they both problematic uh, just in different ways? That that was something that I had a lot of fun writing, frankly. Um, I think, you know, is the book an examination of toxic masculinity? Yes, it certainly is. Um, but it's also just great fun to write a character like Moon who shows up on the page and just, you know, moves with such bluster and bravado. I, I just felt like I was chasing him on some level. Yeah. And, and while I was reading your book, Ben, I was thinking about uh, American pop culture and especially like action movies. 80s action movies are kind of like a guilty pleasure of mine, but I was also thinking about old Westerns and this tradition in American storytelling of uh, male egos and, and more popularly the, the anti-hero figure, these male characters who are on some path of redemption, um, sometimes in a socially lauded way, oftentimes in a you know socially reprehensible way. In a lot of these stories that the characters do redeem themselves in some way, it's usually through like a hard-earned lesson, a noble act of heroism at the last moment, and, and then we get the end credits. What was appealing to you about telling a story, a different kind of story about male egos and asking a question around whether or not redemption is possible? I think I was interested in doing my best to avoid any sort of arc that felt cliche or artificial. A lot of the book, because it's it's situated, at least in the beginning, at a branding agency slash advertising agency, 
the book is interested in artificiality. It's interested in brands. It's interested in labels. And one of the things that, you know, because my native genre is poetry, not fiction, I, 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 I entered this process, you know, I, I read a ton of novels and, and, you know, leading up to the publication of this book, but the vast majority of my time was spent revising. Actually, I wrote the first draft very quickly without the deepest fiction background that I could have had, which was in many ways a curse, but it was also a blessing insofar as I, I didn't even know that I needed it. I didn't know that my character needed to, you know, abide by certain conventions and that was liberating for me. So no, you know, if I had set out to write a book about here, we have this uh, anti-hero at the beginning, but then there'll be rising action and then falling action. And that, you know, I, I, I wasn't bound by any of that. Um, and to be clear, <laughs> I paid for it later on, right? Because I spent 10 years roughly writing the book. It's just that of those 10 years, nine of them were spent revising what I, what I had charted, but the general shape of the book really didn't change that much from the first draft to the end. Wow. Yeah. And so you've mentioned a couple of times, Ben, that you made a, a pretty big jump in changing genres from being a, a published poet and identifying as a poet from a young age, now in fiction writing as a novelist. And uh, it was a couple of years ago, you wrote an article where you described that process, that experience with the following line. And this is a quote, I am yet another poet writing a novel, which is to say, I find myself in hell. Other than what sounds like a very long and arduous process of spending nine years kind of like revising your story and the, and the story arc, what were some of the bigger challenges in becoming a storyteller of a new genre other than just like sheer learning curve of like learning a new thing? Were there other things you had to kind of like teach yourself not to do anymore as you learned to do something new? Yeah. And thanks, thanks for reading that article. I had a lot of fun writing that one. And one of the things I talk about in that article is that being a poet and reading a ton of poetry, writing a lot of poetry, it's great preparation for it's terrific preparation because you're so sort of naturally attentive to imagery, to rhythm, to tension, to uh, all you know all these sorts of techniques that are that are not that easy to develop actually if if you don't start out in poetry. But there is a massive downside, which is that all of your tools are not built to scale. So one of the things I write about in that article is that it felt to me sometimes like I had these little tiny um, like nail scissors and I had to clip an entire front lawn. That's what it felt like because nothing had prepared me for the scale of a novel. And my novel's not particularly long. It's not, it's not you know, um, over a uh, hundred thousand words or anything like that, but I was used to the self-contained page. Most of my poems are, are a page or less. And now suddenly I found that if you change one thing on the first page, it has this butterfly effect where I now need to really think hard about what are the ripples of this. And being a poet just hadn't prepared me for that kind of scale. So it, so it took long, but I'll also say a lot of my favorite novels are ones that are written by poets, former poets. My friend Ruth Matievsky, her book, uh, All Night Pharmacy, just came out. She's a, she's a poet who made the move into fiction. Someone like Garth Greenwell, uh, another 
person who started out as a poet and then wrote novels later on. Uh, I mean, then we, we could name 20 right now. So I think there's a lot gained by it. In no way do I regret the, the journey that I've taken, but it's been a long. Yeah. And I'm curious about why the jump to fiction writing? What was appealing about, you know, you mentioned the difference in scale, like how much longer comparatively, like a long form story is your book, you know, reaches towards 300 pages. What was appealing about making that jump to fiction writing? What, and was it about telling stories in a different way and maybe exploring certain topics in a way um, that poems, I don't know, would it be too sim- too simplistic or overgeneralizing to say that, that poetry couldn't help you to explore those in the ways that you wanted to? Or is that is that accurate? No, I think that's true. I think there are, you know, I don't think of poetry really as a storytelling media. You could argue that it is. Certainly there are narrative poets who someone like Sharon Olds, for example, uh, is telling stories of, of family life and then using the poem to relay those stories. So, but I think for the kinds of poems that I write, I, I agree with you. I think the novel just was a more effective storytelling media, but what I realized later, I didn't realize this when I was writing the book, but now looking back at the book, I think that part of what fiction afforded me that poetry maybe had was an opportunity to bring in humor. Um, I, you know, it's like always gauche. You never say that you're funny. The, the least funny thing you can do is tell people that you're funny. And then suddenly everything you say seems, you know, humorless, but I'll just say that some of my friends have described me as, as a funny person and my, my poems, I don't think some of my poems maybe do, but I haven't been able to bring that in poetry for all the reasons we were talking about earlier. It's a very sincere genre. There's a lot of feeling and a lot of sense of that. And so poems have been a great vehicle for me to delve into that and explore some of those feelings. But this novel was just fun. It was just, it was just funny in a way that I don't know that I expected when I started writing it. Yeah, that's, it's, it's so interesting how, because like, like genres can be anything in a lot of ways, but there's also kind of like voices and storytelling styles kind of gravitate towards different genres for different purposes. And I'm always so curious about what it is that appeals uh, about certain genres to certain people. And it makes sense that, you know, that that there are different storytelling uh, styles or techniques or um, advantages and disadvantages to different styles other than others. Ben, you also teach young adults at Rutgers. Um, I believe you teach, is it it creative writing or do you have uh, multiple classes that you teach at Rutgers? I teach multiple classes within creative writing. So I teach a, an intro multi-genre class, poetry class, nonfiction. I, I, I do a mix. Interesting. So, I mean, you've been, you're obviously an extremely well-versed writer and, and published poet and now novelist. Do you find that it's easier or more challenging to teach the genres that you've been deeply connected to compared to other genres that you can maybe see a little bit, perhaps more clearly or objectively? I enjoy teaching all of it. I think that with poems, sometimes I need to, I, I need to remind myself that I'm not on equal footing with the different genres. So I teach, I teach what I taught last semester was creative nonfiction. I loved teaching it. Have I done some creative nonfiction? 
100%. Um, you know, the, the piece you referenced, the, the article, that, that's a piece of nonfiction. So I've done it, but not at the same level that I've done poetry and not at the same level that I've done fiction. And so my, the way that I enter the classroom changes a little bit. Um, versus something like poetry that I've been reading my entire life, which is not to say that, you know, I know everything or, or even half of what I should know. There's always more to learn and more to read. But I, I think that when I, as a professor, work with creative nonfiction students, I'm, I'm in some ways a better reader of their work, I think, actually, because I'm, I'm a little bit greener. I'm a little bit fresher. That's really interesting. Yeah. And I, I wanted to ask you as well, Ben, about, you know, being in a teaching role um, and, and you know, noticing this, you know, Gen Z or would be your your uh, student body. Um, they've grown up not only with the internet, like you and I did, I believe we're of a similar age, but they've grown up with social media and they've grown up with these different technologies and forms of self-expression. I wonder what you see as the 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 things that that your students are struggling with when it comes to creative self-expression, uh, does it get lumped into, you know, the big broad uh, writer's block that you and I grew up with, uh, parsing apart and trying to trying to understand, um, as was very popular in in the culture and online um, fifteen years ago, or are there more nuances to what they struggle with when it comes to being creative storytellers, like you know, just basically attention span and how much time to devote? What do you notice in your students these days? So, so one thing I'll say is, you know, you're right. Most of them are Gen Z, but one of the things I like about teaching at a place like Rutgers is there's actually, there's a fair bit of diversity across multiple different, uh, axes. So a lot of my students are, are, you know, coming to class later in life or they started their degree, they didn't finish, they come back later. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting mix. I love a classroom like that. It's fascinating to teach someone who's in their sixties sitting next to someone who's 19. Yeah. But I also, you know, your, your question presumes a little bit that they're struggling. I'm not sure that they are. I think that my students are doing incredible work. I think, and I'm, I'm constantly amazed by what they're producing. That's not to say though, that this is not a hard age in which to make art. And you and I, um, I don't know, Dave, we, we do look about the same age. I don't know how old, how old are you? I, I, gra- I'm 37. So I graduated in 2008. So, oh, we're basically exact. Okay. I'm 38. So, we, so we're, we're, we are more or less the same, but so you and I remember, you know, there was a time before social media, there was a time before everything you did was not public in, in the way that it is now. And so I think that when I was a writer in college, you know, like the idea of getting published, it was clear in my mind that there was the work before it was published. And then there was the work after it was published. And if you are a student growing up now, the whole notion of what it means to be published, I think has changed because like, what do you mean? I would put up, write a poem, let it sit on a notebook in my drawer for a year and then try to make it public. That, that notion is, I think very foreign because you could just tweet out a thought that you had, and then that becomes public in a certain way. So I think that they're not struggling as artists, but I do think that it, it is hard to differentiate in some level when work is ready to see the outside world versus when it's something worth keeping private. 
It's really interesting. And yeah, you you caught me in one of my own biased thoughts about the you know inherent nature of struggle when it comes to art and creative self-expression and just get, getting so used to over the years, people identifying more, more perhaps through their struggle than through you know, any other facet of creative self-expression. What kinds of stories uh, do you see, if you can, you know, generalize for us? I'm curious about what kinds of stories you're seeing emerging in your classrooms. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's as diverse as the students who come in the door, but do you notice any trends around like subjects that we would be interested in on this podcast? Do you notice a lot, a lot of uh, uh, exploring like gender identity? Do you notice a lot of people exploring um, social justice issues or reflecting on things that have been happening, you know, like for, for the younger generation living through COVID-19 and at a young developmental age and experiencing things a lot differently than those of us who had maybe a little bit more, um, or just at a different stage of life. Any interesting trends or themes that you've noticed to the stories that, that have caught your attention? I think, you know, certainly all the things you mentioned, right. And, College students also, when they arrive at college, the for for those who are doing the common app, you know, they're writing their personal statement. And for some of them, that personal statement may be the only creative writing that they've really done, or at least the creative writing that's most scrutinized because the college essay is such an important thing. And there's this formula to the college essay of encountering some form of adversity and then how you, you know, overcame it, right? Like that that arc is something that is really baked into the minds of my students. And so a lot of the creative writing that I see follows that same arc, whether it's about, you know, personal matter, whether it's about gender identity or, or you know, so social justice, whatever it is, right? There's like a, a kind of pattern to it. I think that the pandemic has changed to some extent the mindset of my students, because I think that they are hungrier for community than they've ever been. Um, not just by students, right? The pandemic, for those of us who took it seriously, it was a really terrifying and lonely time. And writing can be a very terrifying and lonely thing, but a workshop is a space of community. You are sitting amongst your peers. And so this is maybe less an answer about their work explicitly, but more about just how they situate themselves and how they carry themselves for a long time. After the pandemic, we were still wary to be in person with one another. And I think that that's starting to change, has already changed. It's so interesting to think about, yeah, that being in relationship to one another and how the format of workshop can actually alter the relationship to self-expression and, and the stories that are emerging. Well, Ben, you've been really generous with your time, and I want to be respectful of, of just watching the clock here and ask you a couple last questions. Um, first, I, I wonder if you have certain aspirations for your readers and what they might take away or, or might experience from your first novel. You mentioned that this was a long journey for you in, in writing the book quickly, revising it over quite a number of years, but also finding this liberation and a sense of sounds like lightness and joy from the process of writing with more humor and wit um, throughout throughout the book. What are you hoping that your readers will take from this book, especially perhaps if they've experienced your poems and your published poetry in the past? What comes up for you? Well, I love comedies that aren't just comedies. One of my favorite shows in recent memories was Succession because it's like sad to even talk about it in the past tense now, but 
one of the things Succession did so well was, you know, was it a drama or was it a comedy? And it felt like to me, the answer was both. And that was part of what was so um, compelling about it. Someone like Kendall Roy, is he a total joke or is he, you know, someone who we're really invested in? And my hope is that I wrote a book that lives in a similar area where, you know, a reader could feel free to laugh out loud on one page and then cry on the next page. Like that, that to me is a, is a really meaningful reading experience. But then the other thing is that I want the book to reach folks who worked in a similar industry as I did. The, the branding advertising world, I don't think it's really been covered since Mad Men in this way. So my hope is that folks that work at agencies, they might get a kick out of reading this book and seeing it through one person's eyes. Yeah, you just you just blew my mind as I started to think about uh, would Kendall Roy that avatar and 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 the character resemble more of Seth or Moon? And that just put me made me think, oh, there should be. I think I think probably Moon, but um, yeah, I can just imagine him rocking out to to Jay Z as he rolls up to the office on, on a on a hot morning in uh, New York City. Um, Ben, Ben Perker, he's a poet and novelist. His debut novel is called The Men Can't Be Saved. It's available wherever you get your books. Ben, thank you so much for talking with us about all things story, teaching, novel writing, and uh, about about the these themes that come up in your book. I really enjoyed it. Congratulations and uh, much success to you in the future. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Dave. It means a lot. And thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. My name is Dave Ursillo. Please rate and review our show, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to help other listeners find our show and know that it's truly worth listening to. We work real hard to bring you these interviews. We hope you've been enjoying the new content we've been delivering up to you weekly. Stick around, stay tuned for more interviews coming down the pike. Until next time, dear listener, story on. Story on.